Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name. And we're still here. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You're listening to Feeder in College Hoops. I'm Subi. Alongside me is Taylor Dammel. We're brought to you by Dash Radio's Nothing But Net channel and the Barnburner Podcast Network. Go subscribe on whichever device you use. This episode of Feet is also brought to you by Beach House Soaps. No matter where you live, bring a little bit of the beach to your home with Beach House's all-natural soaps. Be sure to find them at beachhousesoaps.com. Your college hoopers of the week this week are Demetrius Morant and Daquan Cook from not Murray State and Ohio State, respectively, but from UNLV. Yes, I went down a rabbit hole looking for some uh, players, and I stumbled upon, I think it was a 2013-2014 UNLV roster, and they have a guy named Demetrius Morant, very close to one Demetrius Morant, which is Jaw, of course, and Daquan Cook. Daquan Cook, of course, you might remember NBA champion, I believe, with the Miami Heat from Dayton, Ohio, went to Ohio State, but there was a Daquan Cook as well on UNLV. So we may have uh, some sort of parallel there between all four of those players. Regardless, check out the website at thebarnburner.com. That's the-barnburner.com. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at CBB Theater. You should also follow me at Subi232 to find out where the feed is. And make sure to follow Taylor at Taylor Dammel and the shark at the underscore shark underscore BB. Let's open the curtains.
All right. Arizona week rolls on. I'm sure uh, th- there's a large section of our listeners that don't care about Arizona. And I've said that I've come, come to terms with that. I understand, but I'm digging. I'm doing my best to get some, some new, uh, some new guests coming onto the program. So why don't you guys tweet at the shark, tweet at Taylor, tell them to go ahead and get some better representation. Otherwise I'm going to have to keep going back to the well uh, without further ado. Let's go ahead and actually get to one of our great Arizona interviews here. We were joined by uh, Arizona Daily Star contributor, Alec White. All right, we're now joined by a bona fide up-and-comer in the Tucson media. He's currently doing videos, stories, and podcasts for the Arizona Daily Star and formerly a member of the Daily Wildcat and Bally Sports Arizona. We welcome to the program Alec White. I mean, look, I'm sure you just know that I ripped your uh, Twitter bio just now. Um, <laughs> yes. So, I mean, it, it was, it seemed like a great way to introduce you, but I also see in your Twitter, Twitter bio that you claim offense wins championships. Now, is this one of those takes that you've had many arguments over? Because, you know, if you listen to any unoriginal broadcaster, there's a lot of them, they'll always tell you defense wins championships. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a contrarian. I'll go the other way. I'll flip the defense wins championships and go offense wins championships. Uh, I didn't necessarily get proven correct in the last year or so. We, we've had some defensive teams win the championship. You look at, I mean, Baylor was a little bit more defensive-minded than Gonzaga, even though they were probably the, the two uh, most potent offenses in the country. I, I think we could say Baylor is a little bit better defensively. Uh, you look at the NFL, the Buccaneers just won with their stud defense over Mahomes and that offense. But despite me being wrong on that this year, I'm sticking with offense wins championships because in the long run, uh, I think that wins out. But, hey, ripping from my Twitter bio is not a bad thing at all. I mean, that's what it's there for, right? I was going to say, would you have edited my intro at all? Anything no, else you want to no, add? I think that was perfect. Video stories and podcast for the Daily Star. I mean, I will plug Tucson.com, the Wildcaster. Uh, if you're people from Tucson, whether you are in Tucson or not, if you're trying to get up to date on the Arizona Wildcats, you can download the Wildcaster app in Google Play or the App Store. It's free, and you don't have to subscribe to the Arizona Daily Star to get the Wildcats content. You can get everything on there for free. So that's kind of why I plug that in my bio. It's, it's, a, it's a great place to go for U of A content. No, definitely, definitely. I mean, I going back a second here. Isn't uh, Bill Walton a big proponent of offense win championship? Doesn't he? Say he that? is. Uh, yeah. Okay. The, well, yeah. The Pac-12 is not a, a truck stop conference. No, it's not. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's always good to be in the same boat as a legend like Bill Walton. So let's start actually with how you got started right in in your career one thing you hear a lot about from people in the media or working in journalism is that it's not for the faint of heart can you tell us a little bit about your origins uh, and if you took any lumps along the way to where you're at currently so i grew up in tucson and i did and i graduated from the u of a with a journalism degree in may of 2020 COVID year so i didn't get a graduation uh but hopefully they're throwing one in november for all of us but uh, I originally did not want to attend U of A because I didn't really hear much about the sports casting department or anything like that. All you hear about if you live in Arizona is ASU's Cronkite is the works and credit to them. You know, they do have a great department, but kind of my senior year of high school, I started hearing some stuff more 
uh, you know, Justin Spears, who's now my coworker at the Arizona Daily Star, he kind of got me plugged into what he was doing. Uh, you know, he's a little bit older, you know, a couple years older than I am, not too much older, but, you know, he got me plugged in in my freshman year at U of A, you know, I decided that this was the Tucson was the place for me to stay for college. Uh, and he got me involved in all sorts of student media stuff, which I am forever grateful for camp student radio, uh, the daily wildcat UATV. I was kind of involved in all of those departments. So that's why when I say videos, stories and podcasts, that's how I got started out was videos, UATV stories for the wildcat and radio and podcast stuff for camp. So that's, those are kind of my origins. And then my senior year of college, uh, there was an opening at the Arizona daily star as the digital sports producer. I wasn't sure as a senior in college, taking on a full-time job on top of full-time classes, but I had some really great recommendations and I decided to go for it and I have not regret the decision. And in October, it'll be starting my third year with the Daily Star. You know, you're talking to some camp radio alumni here. Really? Well, so actually, unfortunately, I was the forever fill-in host that actually hosted more than uh, the co-host that Subi had. But Subi did have a sports radio show <laughs> uh, on camp uh, camp radio. Coast to I, coast. Uh, coast. I did. Coast, right? And as it was coast to coast with Subi and Ted. And as you can see, it uh, landed me here with it still a nine to five finance job where I'm doing podcasting. So I'm glad Alec that you were able to parlay this into an actual media <laughs> career where you're covering some awesome teams, man. Thanks. Did you guys at least get a good, a decent time slot for your radio show back in the day? Well, you're going to have to tell me what a decent time slot is because I think we were six to seven Friday nights uh, once a week. That was about it. So no, yeah, not, I, I, Friday nights. I like, I like my Friday nights. I don't think there was anybody too many people hanging around the, like what the park student union listening to the radio show out on a Friday. But I will say that, you know, a six to seven o'clock time period on a, maybe on a different day would have worked better, but I don't know. I feel we like, had, you know, we had literally you, you dozens of listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Our parents, our parents were huge fans of the of the oh, show. Man. I told all my buddies when they were pre-gaming, I was like, "Look, just throw this on for an hour, and then you know, the crowd's the gonna be by. going wild." Yeah, exactly. And that's like, and that's like pre-pre-game time. Like the music doesn't have to get going at six. You know, it's no. like you're still getting ready, right? So, so growing up in Tucson, like you did, do you feel like you had a kind of a uh, a leg up on some other people when you are? reporting or were reporting on U of A athletics. And now, you know, obviously you continue to do so, but did you already feel like you had a good connection with the athletic to program or athletic program when you first got into it being from Tucson? I mean, it helped having knowledge about the past, especially U of A basketball, all the rich history with Lute Olson, uh, you know, all of the, the former players that have gone on to do great things. You know, I was, I wasn't necessarily a diehard you. U of A fan. I was kind of still too young to comprehend Lute Olson's impact growing up, but I still had the memories and the recollection to be able to look on it now that kind of helps in my reporting. But I think the biggest thing that helped me was just my passion for, for sports and storytelling as a journalist to be able to, one, understand what makes compelling stories growing up. Like I love to read recaps. You know, I'd open my ESPN app you know, or NFL app or whatever, and, you know, read recaps or read player profile bios. So understanding 
the language and the verbiage that was used to communicate those stories, I think helped me the most, uh, you know, style wise. And then obviously being here and connected to U of A sports, it was just easy to not have to do a ton of research on, oh, who was the the best running back in the last 10 years? I could just already know, oh, Kadeem Carey, you know, uh, what are some of the best moments? Oh, you got, you know, the, the Hill Mary, you know, that comes up. So, you know, just, just certain things like that that help for recall. Absolutely. So another journalist that has a degree from the University of Arizona is Jeff Goodman. And so if we turn our attention specifically to college basketball, Goodman has Arizona fans ranked at number nine for his top most insane, craziest fan bases. Now, I personally think we're a bit low there. Uh, but if you go to any college town, there's always these media rivalries. Alec, right? I mean, like message boards. If you think about it, I'm sure Michigan State fans follow all these people, these local beat writers in, in East Lansing, for example. In Tucson, there's always a guy who people think maybe bashes the team 24-7. And there's probably a person that, that we, we all can think about. Uh, and then there's on the flip, there's always a guy who people think will take a bullet for Sean Miller, despite like losing in the first round to with to Buffalo with DeAndre Ayton. I'm curious to know, you know, as a member of the Tucson media now, what is your approach to covering the basketball team and its personnel? Uh, my approach is to just lay out the facts and not pay attention to the comments below. Yeah, I think that's the, the quickest thing as a journalist that you can start getting in trouble with is if, you know, you're confident in your work and then you start going through the replies because like you said, the number nine craziest fan base, it might be a bit too low. And especially the last four years, uh, you know, being a journalist and being covering U of A since what, 2016 now, the one thing I can always say is that fans will never be satisfied unless they're holding it, unless you're holding a championship at the end, there's always going to be some negative part. If Arizona's winning, oh, well, they didn't, they didn't, do enough they weren't they didn't blow out the team there's this one player that didn't have a good performance and he's he needs to play better if the team's going to reach the highest potential now if the team's losing uh it's oh fire this coach you know throw away everybody this player needs to leave uh you know i think the biggest arguments that fans get in aside from sean miller is whether or not Player specifically basketball players that enter the nba draft should they stick around for another year of school or not. That's that's the one thing through the last five years that everybody every offseason, somebody's mad that a player leaves for the draft. That how dare they go and try to make money for their career as opposed to staying in school and maybe, maybe winning a Pac-12 tournament or maybe one or two NCAA tournament games. That that to me is the the one that I think I see fans uh you know argue over the most. And then of course you know, where, wherever ASU fits in that mix. I'm definitely one of the uh, argument of the, why aren't you staying and just being the Pac-12 player <laughs> of the year next year and then getting a lottery pick rather than not even getting drafted, uh, which, you know, that person can remain nameless for, or those multiple examples uh, can, can remain nameless here. So, so not to, you know, going back on you growing up in Tucson again, you don't have to name any names by, by any means when I ask this, but were you surprised or I guess what was surprising to you from going from, you know, Tucson resident to U of A student reporter to now legitimate member of the media? Were you surprised with any 
people that you maybe had a view of from just reading their stories and stuff in the paper to now actually having to interact with these people on a daily basis? Any of that, you know, any of those people catch you off guard or were there, you know, more positive thoughts you had about some of the other reporters in Tucson after you got to know them? I think the the two guys that I've had really positive experiences with, uh, one I think everybody has a positive experience with is uh, Brian Jeffries, who's the radio uh, radio play-by-play guy for both U of A football and basketball. He's been doing it for 30 years. Uh, he's amazing. Uh, you know, I've had multiple conversations with him, just asking him advice. Uh, you know how he prepares. He's come and spoke at different when I was a student, different camp events or he was at the daily wildcat one time so he's he's very generous with his time and you know he brought one time his his uh his sheets that he prepares with where he details like all the players names where they're from stats and how he highlights and just how he prepares and i'm not a radio play-by-play guy but it's so fascinating to see his breakdown uh, and he's just such a, a genuine person and then the other guy that I think recently people have started to turn on, but as a coworker of his, like I'm always going to be a writer, writer die Greg Hansen guy. Like I grew up, you know, reading him, you know, daily star. Uh, and, you know, he's caught flack for the way he's approached the Sean Miller situation. But again, Greg's just a genuine human being. When you meet him in person, uh, you know, asks how I am. He'll read the stuff. He read the stuff that I did at the daily wildcat. And he reads the stuff I do at the star. And if there's something that catches his eye, you know, he'll always, you know, reach out and say, Hey, you did a really good job on this. Uh, you know, I, and you know, when you have someone of Greg Hansen's caliber and his experiences, he is reaching out to you and saying, you did good with this. It's just so affirming as a young journalist to hear those words. So I think those are the two, uh, main guys that I've really enjoyed experiences with. Well, I'll tell you what, I threw a DM to Brian Jeffries as well. Have yet to get a response from him to pop he's on. He's not on Twitter much. He's he's very rarely on Twitter. That's fair. Can I tell you what my prerequisite is? And this is a very low bar. As long as you got the DM uh, icon, if I can DM you, I will DM <laughs> you. So yeah, maybe one day, like halfway through the season, he'll see this. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Brian Jeffries, obviously a, an absolute legend, especially around the program. And I'm glad you also brought up Greg Hansen because I, I'm curious when, when you see these types of tweets about Greg Hansen from other journalists as well, did, like, does it take a little bit of you, a lot of restraint knowing him personally to not hop in and, and reply to their DMs saying, go climb a tree? Oh, absolutely. Because Greg Hansen is not the type of guy that's going to engage in the back and forth Twitter beef. He's he'll do his thing. He'll tweet out a story or his opinion and he'll he'll just let it go. Whether you agree with it or not, that's that's what he as a columnist, as an opinionist, that's what he gets paid to do, whether you agree with him or not. Uh, And when you see some of the backlash as a coworker, it's tough not to jump in and and, you know, clap back at those naysayers. But. You know, I, I've just kind of learned through watching other people get involved in those things that there's nothing good that'll come from that. And, you know, Greg doesn't need me to go to bat for him to know, uh, you know, when he's right or when he's wrong or when, you know, he has an opinion. So I take solace in that knowing, you know, if if Greg needed somebody to defend him, you know, I would be there. But he, you know, he is more than capable of holding his own. So I just kind of let it play out. 
So uh, Subi brought up Jeff Goodman. Uh, you've got other people like Dan Hicks, who are U of A alum as well. Have you had the, any opportunity to interact with some of the national guys that uh, not even just that went to U of A, but especially the guys that went to U of A? Uh, not a ton. There is one, Ryan Radke. He does radio. Uh, he'll do radio for Pac-12. And I think he does some of it for the LA Rams for football too. Uh, I met him. A couple years ago with the Pac-12 tournament, I think the year the year DeAndre Ayton was was still in school for U of A and they went all the way to the, the tournament title game. Ryan was was there, you know, calling each game on radio. So uh, we interacted a little bit there. Uh, I've interacted with Dave Pash. He's not necessarily a U of A guy, but he's he's the guy that has to deal with Bill Walton every Thursday and Saturday night. So that's a privilege. Uh, <laughs> that is a I'm surprised that Dave Pash has, has not lost all of his hair trying to deal with Bill shenanigans, but Dave's a really great guy to, to just talk with. And, you know, I have had some interactions with Bill too. He's a frequent uh, analyst when U of A and UCLA get together. So, you know, I, I don't have anything but respect and, you know, admiration. And uh, Bill is just a funny guy. The one thing about Bill if if your listeners have never met him in person or you guys have never met him in person, he's the same on camera as he is off camera. Like he, you take him off the mics and he's still the love and life guy ready to go watch, a, you know, a concert. He's just living life. The only other celebrity pro football player, I should say, it's Gronk. We went to school with Gronk. Oh, and I did meet I did meet Gronk. Uh, how great was that? This the spring at the spring game. He's just awesome. So so I always tell people the way you see him on camera, and this was earlier when he was doing Yo Soy Fiesta and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I think people now understand that's genuinely him. But back then, some were saying, "Is this a facade? Is this just an act?" Uh, -uh. he's he's just a a, a lunatic as it is. What was your interaction with Gronk at the spring game? Uh, well, I he was. This was after the spring game happened, and he was on the field with Brewski and Jed Fish, and they were going and trying to get a photo at the end with, you know, some of the players and the cheerleaders, just some posed photographs. And that was kind of the first time after the, the crowd dispersed. I just, I just said, what's up. And, you know, that I covered the team and he, he was like, Oh, you know, it's great to be back. I'm having a, a, a great time. And that was kind of the extent of our conversation. Cause he had so many other people pulling in his direction, but I was, you know, grabbing some video on my camera and this, you know, all the kids, all the younger kids have footballs in hand or t-shirts in hand with some Sharpies and they're on the field and Gronk signing photographs. And one kid hands him a football and Gronk pulls the football back and acts like he's going to throw the ball at the kid. And so the kid starts, you know, screams and turns. And then he just, Gronk goes, oh no, I'm just kidding. Come here, boy. And then, you know, he signs the, the, the football and you know, he's just throwing, you know, little, little passes to the kids in the end zone. And so, you know, like you, like you guys said, he's the same, you know, in the game as he is off the game, just a, a goofball. Well, he was the same 10 years ago, like the NFL yeah. lockout, when the NFL lockout happened, we were, uh, were we juniors or seniors, whatever, one of the two, but like Gronk was just hanging out in Tucson, like at every pool party, just chilling. And he's literally still that same person. So speaking of that, do you think, do you ever pinch yourself as a U of A fan as well, being like, oh, this is pretty cool. I get to interact with 
Rob Gronkowski or Sean Miller or Tommy Lloyd or any of these people? I mean, do you ever just think like, uh huh, this is this is pretty awesome? I mean, I as a journalist, I try to turn off the fan aspect as much as possible. But I think in the moment, it is cool when you uh, you know, are able to to kind of reflect on those moments. You know, seeing Gronk. Uh, you know, I think the one moment I look back on a lot is the the two years that Arizona won the Pac-12 tournament in basketball, just being at every single home game, being on the road, covering some of the road games, being in the locker room post game for the Pac-12 tournament for both seasons, being on the court as they're celebrating those titles. It's just cool as cool as, you know, a U of A fan, I guess, but more appreciative as a journalist knowing that, you know, I was there covering this and I was contributing to other people's experiences as a fan. It's like you guys or other fans that tune in to U of A coverage or read the Daily Star or the Wildcat, knowing that I'm contributing to maybe their happiness or how they perceive the events that are going on. I think that's more where I take a greater appreciation in. I'll tell you what, man, for someone who graduated just a year ago during a pandemic, it's a very mature perspective that you have. It's hard. It, take, it takes it takes a while. Yeah. But I I think I, I think just being involved right from the get-go my freshman year and covering so many U of A games over the last five years, you kind of get a practice of how to turn on those fan emotions and those journalist emotions. And I have uh, you know, my favorite sports teams outside of Arizona are, aren't Arizona sports teams. So I'm able to, to, I guess, turn off that part of the fan brain for U of A stuff, because I know I have outlets at other different sports. I'm a big Denver Broncos football fan. I love the St. Louis Cardinals for baseball, uh, Phoenix Suns guy. So I'm able to, you know, use those times as my fan experience and to be able to yell at the TV but believe me, there are times when I get you know frustrated with what U of A is doing or excited. It's always as good as a journalist when the team's good because it helps you uh, write stories. More people pay attention to it. So I am grateful when U of A wins because it always helps my job. Well, so you had mentioned a source of frustration, anger. Look, we're all fans. So at the you know at some point, we're all fans and human, really. So a lot of that source of frustration recently regarding the basketball team, many would argue was Sean Miller, who is no longer there as the head coach. Let's go back to high school. This is an open essay. You just have to hit the word count, man. I'm like that cool English teacher who's going to say, look, there's no right or wrong answer. I just want you to state your case. Open answer essay. Tell me your thoughts on Sean Miller and his tenure at Arizona. Uh, I think Sean Miller's tenure will be marked by – I mean, this might be short and simple. This isn't necessarily essay form, but great recruiter, uh, but not always the best at adapting to the different styles of college basketball and the way the game has evolved. Uh, I, I think the big people like to be critical of Sean Miller's coach's style. I am not necessarily one of those people that says, oh, he's a terrible coach. But what I will say is that he does struggle with adapting his system to his roster and the group of players that he has like he can get some really great talent we saw how much talent he accumulated but he wasn't always the best at finding the right roles for every single player on that roster to fill 
and the way he was there nice talent. Was there ever a specific example that like egregiously stands out to you? Well, the buff, I mean, the Buffalo game, there was no reason that that well, really that whole season, there was no reason that DeAndre Ayton and Dusan Ristic, as good as Dusan played that year, there was no reason those two seven footers should have been playing the four and the five the entire season. I think DeAndre was more than capable of playing the five and having Dusan come off the bench and maybe go with a smaller guard oriented lineup. Uh, but that was really exposed. His unwillingness to change was really exposed in the Buffalo game where all of a sudden Buffalo comes out shooting threes and CJ Massenberg is putting the spins on DeAndre Ayton and Sean Miller refuses to change how he's approaching uh, his defensive mindset. And so now you get in the second half and, you know, you hope Buffalo is going to cool off, but they don't. And, you know, defensively, you know, Ayton kind of got exposed in that game, not being able to step out and guard the perimeter as much. And, you know, Ristic was left to to guard the rim. And when you got a guy like Ristic, who's, who's decent, but he's not, he's not somebody that you look at as a rim protector. He can rebound and facilitate guys. And he's got some good post moves, but he's not a, I'm going to post, you know, you can post him up and he's going to block shots uh, necessarily at the rate that DeAndre Ayton could. So I think that's, that's the one that stands out to me. I think you could probably say Laurie Markin in the year before, similarly, where it's like this dude should be taking 25 shots a game, not in the sweet 16, not touching the, taking a shot for the last was it 11 minutes of the yeah, game yeah, or 12 minutes of minutes. the game? Yeah. When you've got a, a, a lottery pick shooter on the team. Now you say something that I think is very interesting and that's um, that he uh, didn't match his talent to his playing style, because I think that was more, and maybe you'll disagree with me. I think that was more of a second half of his tenure at U of A. Cause I would argue that those like, Brandon Ashley, Aaron Gordon, Rondé Hollis Jefferson teams, those teams were built perfectly for his play style. And I wonder what your opinion on is if you think that those losses to like Wisconsin, for example, kind of fucked with them for lack of a better term in in, in adjusting because those plays, those teams were the best defensive teams in the country. They played at a slow pace and they were extremely efficient, which is, which matched all of their playing styles. You know, maybe you could say that they could have run up a little more with, you know, Aaron Gordon and some lobs or Stanley Johnson in transition, whatever. But do you think the, those kind of elite eight losses uh, specifically maybe mess with how Sean both recruited and what style of basketball he wanted to play? Well, I think the recruiting change comes in the fact that he I mean, we had some great one and dones with Aaron Gordon, and Stanley Johnson, but the classes after that started to shift where now the class was primarily built on your one and dones. The reason those, those teams with, you know, Gordon, uh, you know, Brandon Ashley, Rondé Hollis, Jefferson, uh, you know, Nick Johnson, TJ McConnell. The reason those teams were so good is because those guys were in Sean Miller's system multiple years and bought into the defensive mindset where you're getting one and done guys who maybe, yeah, you can get them to play at a, more you can coach them into being more defensive minded, but their their primary job is they want to score, they want to impress NBA draft scouts out there to see what they can be at the next level. And you just started to see the class, you know, and it was really you know Alonzo Trier's class, and then the class after that with Raleigh Alkins, Kobe Simmons, Laurie Markinen, where those guys were were there for such a short time that 
you didn't really get to Sean Miller didn't really get to mold them the way he wanted. And you, you look at the defensive ratings. I think if I remember correctly, they were a top 10 offense Lowry's year and a, a top 40 defense. And that was, that's still the best defense that they've had a top uh, over the last, you know, four years that, you know, Sean was there. So it just, the defensive ratings just started to slip because he couldn't, get guys that could buy in for a full season of being, you know, I'm going to run the pack line defense and then, you know, play a, you know, slow tempo offense that just didn't fit a lot of the guys he recruited. So do you think that's a uh, specifically a Sean Miller problem, a college basketball wide problem, or maybe a combination of, of both? Cause you know, you see like everyone's a one and done now, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I think that's tough. Cause I'm, I'm not, in Sean Miller's head to know what he's thinking. You know, I, I think he really, he really pushed for the Nico year, Josh Green and Zeke Naji. I think he really believed that he could make a, a big run with those guys. The one uh, quote he gave when they all signed their, their NIL or their N- NLIs. There we go. National letter of uh, intent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now we have NIL. Yeah, NLIs. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Slipping me up there. Yeah. Uh, but when they, they signed their letters of intent to go to U of A, he said that signing that class was one of his most proud accomplishments. Before those guys even played a minute of basketball in an Arizona uniform, Sean Miller said that that was one of his proudest moments as a coach is getting those guys to come to Arizona, given the hardships the couple years prior. And I don't know. It's, it's kind of a long-winded answer if it's more of a Sean Miller problem or a college basketball program. But I, I'm a believer that Miller, Sean Miller, felt that he really had something with that 2019 class with with Zeke and, and those guys, and it just didn't come together for whatever reason. So, you know, I, I think that was you know he got the extra year, but I think that was really the final nail of you get his most prized recruiting class outside of, you know, Aiton, you get that best recruiting class and you know, he still couldn't make it come together. So that was actually, that dovetails beautifully into my next question, Alec, for you personally, and you can even go back to when the news broke about the Aiton stuff, I think around 2017, when did you personally think to yourself, it's over for Sean? I, I think it was over in a couple different ways. You know, over as in the fact that I didn't think there was there were stages to it. You go through stages because you try to convince yourself, well, maybe, maybe this could happen. But I think for me, it clicked in. Sean Miller can't get to a final four or wouldn't be able to do it at Arizona uh, after the Buffalo loss. Because, I mean, you have three guys that end up going to the NBA and you know, there's just this collapse. I think that was my first realization that, hey, maybe Sean Miller's not the guy that can get get to a final four. Maybe he's a guy that is going to compete for a PAC 12 title every year, but I don't think he's going to get over the hump. And then, you know, I think as a coach, it was really just not being able to maximize that team with, you know, Nico and Josh and Zeke. It was just too heavily built on freshmen and he didn't bolster enough of the other guys around him. Some, uh, you know, some additions, Max Hazard didn't really pan out the way, that I think people intended uh, Dylan Smith as long as he was in an Arizona uniform, 
didn't really become the the three and D guy that we were hoping he could become. So I think there were just time after time where you're seeing players that he got that he had a lot of praise for not live up to the praise he put on them. I think that's really when it started to be like, okay, you know, this is this is really, uh, you know, his time is coming to an end. Yeah, I think we all had multiple stages of when we were thought when we thought it was going to be over. I, I'm a much bigger Sean Miller supporter than than Subius, so I was, and I'm kind of the grand optimist. So I was always like, you know, just one more year, like just give him one more year, and he'll and he'll be fine. But so, did you have any uh, did you have any uh, thing other than uh, good interactions with Sean Miller though, in, in terms of your coverage of the team uh, over those years? I mean, he the one thing I learned is as a journalist is you need to be very selective and pointed when you ask questions to Sean Miller, especially when he's in a grump, you know, a a tough mood coming off a loss, you need to choose words carefully because, you know, he'll, he'll, he could be, you know, very, I don't know, not necessarily rude, but he can be combative. If you, if you question and say, Hey, Sean, you know, the last five minutes or the last five games, the team's you know, final minute hasn't looked really good. And, you know, he might have a completely different version of what happened in his mind. But he, he might come back and say, well, I thought it looked really good. We just didn't execute, you know, and he'll cut you off right there to let you know how he feels. So I think it's it's very selective in how you ask questions. But I never had a a bad interaction with Sean Miller you know, even, you know, when he was off, off camera, uh, you know, he was, you just see him in the hallway and you just go, Hey, what's up coach. And he, you know, he knew you by name, you know, after a while, I think by my second year, he knew, you know, kind of who I was and he'd be like, Hey, you know, how's, how's it going? Uh, so I never had any you know ill conversations with him. And, uh, but there were definitely some, some tricky times in the media where uh, if you didn't ask uh, a, a question the right way, he would let you know about it. For sure. I mean, I didn't, uh, so I mean, I'm just, I'm curious about this though. And like, I'm not here to get with the details because there's so many details that we can go into so many articles, all of that, but people don't care about that. The general public does not care about the nitty gritty details for the most part. So when we think back to that Schleybaugh article, right. And we, we think back to what has been said about Sean, what's come out about Sean. Do you personally think he cheated? I, that's that's a very loaded question. The way the best way I can answer this for you guys is that it would come as a very big surprise to me if Sean Miller, who is as basketball lives, eats and breathes basketball as much as anybody that you'll ever meet. Like he, you know, for all the criticism he gets thrown his way, I don't think I've ever met somebody that just loves basketball the way Sean Miller loves basketball. Uh, you know, just the rich tradition, but th- that stems into way the, the way he runs his program is that he is so detail oriented. It, it was surprise me if he didn't at least know some of what was going on behind the scenes with Brooke Richardson and everything going out. Now, do I think he directly paid a player? No, because I, I think if he, if he had directly paid an Arizona player that would have come out by now, but I, you know, it, it would it would shock me if he just had absolutely zero clue that book Richardson was engaging in these activities. And he, he even himself was uh, talking with, you know, Brandon, um, you know, 
Dawkins uh, about this. And so, I don't know. It's, again, there's no evidence that points towards Aiton getting paid. I don't think he paid Aiton. I think that Schlebaugh article by ESPN, I think that was poorly produced. Uh, and it really had a negative impact on Sean Miller's career. I think had that not been printed, he still might be the coach uh, at Arizona. Uh, but I can't answer for sure whether or not he cheated. All I know is, like I said, you know, I feel like he had to have at least some knowledge of what was going on in his program, given how much we know that he is so detail-oriented about his program. So I'm glad that uh, you said the words poorly produced because that's always by my big uh, bugaboo with the whole situation, right, is is that article, all of the nitty-gritty facts is to be – uh, kind of a, um, alluded to none of them ended up being like correct I guess and they went back and edited the article like three or four times over the first like 48 hours and you look at the NCA investigation doesn't even have anything to do with DeAndre Aiden and he's not even mentioned within the uh, the allegations or whatever if I remember correctly does yeah. it ever does it ever bother you as a journalist when you look at someone who's working at a national level and go okay so you can't get like 10 of the 20 facts in your article wrong and then you get credit for this whole deal do you ever look do you have more of like a stay in your lane attitude and i'm just working on my own stuff or do you ever look at that type of stuff and that's just one example but do you ever look at that type of stuff and go like how do these people have these jobs when they're getting so much of the information wrong well it's a good learning exercise in the current climate of journalism i think that for me as a young journalist how do i how do i avoid as a, as an aspiring journalist, as someone who, you know, would love to have a career at ESPN covering college basketball one day, like that would be so amazing. Uh, but how do I avoid that? And I think a lot of it has to do with the, with the mindset of that a lot of journalists right now have, which is be, be first. You don't have to be right, but put it out, put it out there first. We can always come back and correct it later. Whereas, you know, the other mindset of, you know, outlets that wait to be the third or fourth publication. Now you just kind of seem like you're taking someone else's story uh, at the, the, you know, the first, you know, outlet that reported it, uh, you know, all the attention goes to the outlet that breaks the new story. So uh, for me, it's, it's difficult to, to read some of those things that happened and it hits home because this is, you know, we'll see all stories like this happen in so many other places where a reporter will get a fact or, you know, a trade is wrong or a free agent signing, you know, a player flips a decision or a commitment and, but it's written by, you know, another outlet covering another school and you don't really understand the impact because you just, you just see the story and that, you know, it ends up being wrong. You're like, Oh, okay. The guy had it wrong. Oh, you know, he's lazy or didn't check his sources enough. And then you kind of move on. But when it happens to the school that you attend and the school that you cover, it really forces you to realize the the impacts that being wrong has. And so that to me, I guess, you know, is the biggest takeaway for me. So as an Arizona basketball fan and a Green Bay Packer fan, you could imagine my opinion of the media over the last uh, two years here or so. <laughs> so Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, he's never playing for the Packers again, right? So <laughs> so how does, I guess, how does one, you kind of alluded to it, and I don't know if you have a better answer to it or not, but so how does one 
get ahead while not being ahead, I guess. You just always kind of hang your hat on being the person who always has the facts completely correct. And is that, to you, does that seem like a, a, a big enough hill to die on, so to speak, that it will help you uh, grow in your career? Well, I mean, my ambition as a journalist right now isn't necessarily to break stories. Like I'll, I'll form connections with journalists in the area, you know, journalists in Phoenix, media people in Phoenix, but I don't see myself as a breaking news source. So that's kind of how I stay out of it is I'm not searching for, uh, you know, this past week in football, I know we're on basketball, but this, you know, yesterday, Jet Fish came out and said, it's going to be Gunnar Cruz and Will Plummer being the, the starting quarterbacks. You know, I, you know, know several players on the team that probably knew the day before and if I really had been ambitious enough, I probably could have gotten a scoop and, you know, known ahead of time that was going to be the call. But I don't my ambition as a sports journalist isn't to be a heavy hitting, you know, breaking news reporter. Our, our Daily Star writer, Michael Lev and Bruce Pascoe, they do football and basketball. They do a great job of breaking stories on their own. Uh, so I kind of let them handle that. So as far as, you know, the, the stories that I break on my own or, you know, more local high school stuff, uh, you know, coaching stuff, you know, commitments, uh, you know, so I'll get some stuff there, but I always try to, to verify unless, unless it's somebody within the building, you know, that has direct information. I, you know, always try to, to check with my boss or with somebody else that's connected to make sure like, Hey, is this, is this really happening before, I, I hit send. Definitely. Now here is my last Sean Miller question before we move on to the future. I think one of the most fascinating parts about Sean is how polarizing of a figure he really is in Tucson. You either love him or you hate him. I've never met someone who's lukewarm on him somewhere in the middle. What do you think makes Sean so polarizing to people? What do you think makes him so hateable to the people that hate him? So lovable to the people that love him? It's the fact that he has gotten so close to be getting to a final four and that, you know, even when he first got the job at U of A, he was looked upon as the successor to Lute Olson. And so when you have, when you wear that, that badge of being Lute Olson's successor, that's going to continue the rich tradition of Arizona basketball. There are expectations that come with it and there is a personality that comes with it. Lute Olson Nobody has a bad word to say about Lute Olson because he is genuine with everybody that he interacts with. Uh, he, you know, he is out in the community. He has, you know, Bobby, his his late wife. She was the 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 lady that was going to just pour love on you and welcome you with open arms. And those two just formed this amazing duo in Tucson. And, you know, Shaw Miller kind of got the the short end of the stick of having to wear that badge. It's, you know, Taylor, for you as a Packers fan, it's, you know, the Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers thing where if Aaron Rodgers didn't win that first Super Bowl or early in his career, like it would be a madhouse in Green Bay if, you know, Rodgers is still there with no Super Bowls. And, you know, you know Shaw Miller kind of has to – he had all that early success where you felt like, oh, he was building up to get to that final four spot. And he was just right on the edge. 
and promised so many times that, you know, this could be the year, this might be the year. And when you fall short that many times, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to, for people to continue to support him. And he really pulled back. I think the last five years of being in the community, he was not involved with a lot of community work. He was not in commercials. You know, he stopped being on Hughes federal credit union commercials. Um, you know, the appearances that you have as a coach with maybe alumni or certain maybe schools that have you come out and do speaking engagements. He remained very reserved. So it's hard for people to support him when the only interactions they get with him are on the basketball court. And when those expectations fall short and he's not really being the uh, upstanding citizen that maybe he was in the early terms, it's hard for people to go to bat for him and be a Sean Miller supporter when, you know, there's not a whole lot to root for. We'll we'll move on to future. I, I wonder how much of that was athletic department directed of not doing some stuff of public appearances, you know, in terms of, you know, when there was controversy surrounding and maybe, you know, a, not a circus created, but questions from people in the crowd potentially being only about the NCAA allegations and all that type of stuff. But we could go on about that for literally oh, yeah. a whole, a whole another <laughs> hour. So let's move on to Tommy Lloyd. Okay. So mm-hmm. how privy were you to uh, the hiring process and Tommy Lloyd being the decision and I guess what was just kind of your general reaction when uh, that, that news came down? Well, I, I think the, the two names as the hiring process went on that came out, it, it was Damon Stoudemire, Tommy Lloyd, and maybe a third wild card where, you know, Dave Hickey last minute going back to the Jet Fish hire, Jet Fish kind of came on within the last couple days of that whole process and just kind of surprised everybody in the Tucson media and the football media. So there was always that possibility lurking that maybe there's a third guy looming, but Tommy Lloyd felt like the guy from the beginning due to his strong international ties, he, you know, his connection. He knew Lute Olson, not super well, but he was involved in some of the Lute Olson camps going back. And the fact that, West Coast, Arizona, and Gonzaga, and I mean, you know, UCLA, depending on the year, have been the, the powerhouses over the last, you know, 15 years. Uh, so you you try to look at the winning formula on West Coast, and that's been Gonzaga basketball, and you get somebody that has been around for the rise of Mark Few's team from the very beginning, and Tommy Lloyd fit all of all of the criteria to become a U of A head coach outside of having head coach and experience. Uh, I think he just, I think he sold president Robbins and I think he sold Dave Hickey on his vision and being able to recruit at a high level. I think the biggest thing people are concerned about is his lack of head coaching experience. Do you buy into that at all? Or is there any other reservations that you can identify that you think are substantial for the Tommy Lloyd era? I mean, I think, the head coaching experience or the lack of it is certainly a concern, especially when you, you, know, you get to a game in January against UCLA or USC and it's down to the last 10 seconds. And as a coach, you, you got to draw up a play like that. That is, you know, you know, your live or die moments as a coach and how you are judges, how the plays you run, we've seen with Sean Miller, how you run the offense in those, those final minutes. Uh, but I think, the way 
Tommy Lloyd explained in his opening press conferences and to the sit downs that we had with him with the daily star. We had about a 15 minute conversation with him after he was hired, just myself, Justin Spears, Greg Hansen, and Bruce Pascoe, just us in the room with Tommy, Tommy Lloyd. Uh, he told us that through the years, there were more and more head coaching like responsibilities that Mark few gave out to Tommy Lloyd, knowing that there was the possibility that Lloyd may leave for a different job or Mark few could retire and Lloyd would be the head coach in waiting. So I think little by little Lloyd was getting more repetitions as practicing of head coaching responsibilities. So I think that's uh, that eases some of the concerns. So Mark, Mark few is a huge Lute Olson disciple, as you know, and he has been on record saying that he ran his Gonzaga program a lot like the way that Lute built the Arizona program back in the day. Now, Every coach says this. Every new coach says this. I may may believe Tommy Lloyd a little more, but do you believe Tommy Lloyd when he was when he said, "Hey, Arizona was the only job I was ever going to leave Gonzaga for"? I think there was a short list of jobs that he would leave Gonzaga for. I think that's that's something he says, you know, in the moment moment to win the fan base over. But I do believe that Arizona was a a calling card for for him and that it is a place that he genuinely wanted to go because he, as he got engaged in more and more recruiting battles, as he accumulated more responsibilities, he was recruiting against Arizona. He was recruiting against UCLA. He saw up close, you know, every couple of years when Arizona and Gonzaga played in those epic non-conference games, the history of Arizona basketball and how passionate it is. So I do believe that, you know, Arizona is a place that Tommy Lloyd coveted. Now, was it now? Let's say Duke opens up, which it, it is, but let's say Duke had the process this summer. Maybe they didn't stay in house. Maybe they looked elsewhere. And Mark Few says, Hey, I've got a guy. Or UNC, like it opened up, maybe given Mark Few and Roy Williams very close connection, that, you know, Mark Few says to Roy Williams, Hey, I've got a guy for you. Uh, you know, then I do believe that you know Lloyd could have ended up elsewhere. But as far as West Coast teams, I think it was, Arizona was at the top of his list. We always ask players and coaches that have jumped on the program this question. We always say, what's the toughest or most fun visiting arena that you've played? And for you, right, you're in a different part of the arena, I suppose. You're not on the <laughs> basketball court. But what's the best place you've gone as a visiting member of the media? I'm talking like state-of-the-art press room, press box, wherever you are. They treat you well. Where is number one in your book uh, in terms of the visiting, a visiting oh. arena? Well, college basketball, it's really tough to top McHale because I think it's one of the best venues in the country. And Arizona hasn't had too many non-conference games where it goes and plays a premier program to see some of the top ones. I mean, I've been to Poly, and that is a super great, you know, arena. The facilities are awesome. Uh, you know, the, the rich history, you just walk in and you, there's statues out front. But the game I went to for that, it wasn't a hyped up Arizona UCLA game. It was my first visit to Poly was uh, the year I think Brandon Williams was still on the team and he he played and you know I think he played Arizona got blown out by USC and UCLA back to back. We were at that game actually. We were were at the game in in Poly. But like I mean, did they have a nice press room or anything like that? They did. They did. They had a nice press room. Uh, But my my all time favorite is still Staples Center. 
and it's not a college basketball venue, but it is a, you know, it is a basketball venue that I've been a few times. The press room there is unlike anything I've ever seen. You've got the free ice cream machine. You've got, uh, ven- you know, uh, $10 dinners, uh, you know, fancy seats wherever you're at. I mean, it, it is just the most upscale experience ever. Uh, and so, I don't know, Staples is just, was just a complete different you know, mind-blowing experience altogether. So then, of course, the follow-up question is, what's the worst place you went where, like, you, you sit there and you're like, the Wi-Fi doesn't even work. I don't even have a plug-in for my computer. What's the worst arena that you visited? As a Homer, Arizona, this might sound as a biased, but I don't like ASU setup at all. Like, it is, it is a terrible working environment for the media. You're just – the chairs are too close together. The, the rows where they have the desks are too close together. The, I've covered five games, uh, U of A, ASU games – no, four. Four in Tempe. Two of them, they've had to fix the internet, like, right before tip-off, where you've got people moving seats and IT guys are working on the internet as tip-off is happening uh, – you know, the media room is all the way on uh, where the interview room is all the way on the other side. You know, it's in this small area. Uh, you know, it's just there's no hard. It's hard to get to concessions. It's hard to get to bathrooms. Ah, man, I, it sounds like a bias thing. But compared to McHale, like it, it just doesn't even top it because McHale had just has, uh, you know, the Wi-Fi isn't great at McHale. It's been better. The last couple of years, but I, as a media member, it's always tough trying to find my way in Tempe. So, uh, one more, I guess, question that's not basketball related necessarily, but because you know you cover all U of A athletics or a lot of U of A athletics, we kind of have an unprecedented year in front of us as an athletic department. Our all four of our major sports have new head coaches that have no head coaching experience that's basketball, yeah. football, uh, baseball, and softball. And that's, I, you know, having not gone back and looked at this, I'm, I would guess that this is the first time since like 1914 that an athletic department has four coaches in their four major sports that have no head coaching experience. What do you, I guess, as a general expectation or a general guess uh, expect from this year in terms of like your, not, not just the performance on the field, but like your media relations with people who, collectively have never really held press conferences before well the one thing that has been great so far is that jed fish seems to be the unifying figure for the arizona athletic department like he came in all media savvy you know wanting to open up practices and have press conferences and treat the media nicely which uh compared to the previous regime is a far cry and a much improved version so as media members, just say we Kevin very... Sumlin sucks. <laughs> just say Kevin Sumlin sucks, man. Okay. <laughs> he was not the best with the media. Um, but Jed Fish, he's got all the head coaches from top to bottom buying in on what he's selling. And it, it's the first time, you know, as you know, even through my student years and even before that, that the entire athletic department has felt like it's trending in one direction where everybody is aligned, the coaches support each other. Uh, we were hearing from Adia Barnes that uh, you know she's gone out to lunch with Jed Fish and Tommy Lloyd, and she's got relationships, you know, with them. Caitlin Lowe, the new softball coach, 
uh, you know, so the, the one thing I'm grateful for is that we're as media members going to have more and more access for football and for basketball, because Tommy Lloyd seems to be doing a similar uh, path as Jed Fish and allowing uh, media to interview players one-on-one to come watch practices or off-season workouts. So that's a great development. So let me get you out of here while in, in gas you up here, Alec. You put together a sports cinema reel highlighting the best moments you shot in 2021, covering yeah. the various Arizona teams. It was magnificent, man. Absolutely terrific. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. It, I mean, it's a two-parter, roughly four minutes. I'm telling the theater goers listening to this right now, go check it out. But the consumer sees four minutes. Take us behind the curtains and detail what really went into uh, making that piece of theater. Well, so uh, cinematography reel is, is something new that I, I started the la- and really in quarantine. Like I, at UATV as a student, you know, you get kind of the, the over-the-shoulder cameras and your film and highlights, and that interests me. And then, you know, you start to see these, you know, teams and affiliate, you know, their content teams start to produce videos and content with high-quality cameras and everything's looking crisp. And, uh, you know, it just looks very professional. And so in quarantine, I said, okay, how do I do that at a basic level? Right. You know, I'm, I can't get access to the most high tech movie equipment, but I, I can get a decent, you know, intermediate camera and the daily star can give me some camera lenses that will help me film. And so that's really what I started doing this past year was, you know, as even going, stepping aside in my journalist role and trying to more as a videographer, uh, you know, which, you know, is something I have a lot of passion for now. So putting together that reel is I just wanted to showcase really the success of all of the, you know, athletic depart- athletic teams on campus outside of football because they had a, a really bad year. But there were still some highlights with Fish getting hired, uh, you know, the spring game, Gronk coming back. Uh, so my reel was really just centered on, OK, how do I take, you know, my favorite moments that I shot, but also tell a story of how the athletic season went for U of A. And so, you know, maybe a real may should only be maybe two to two and a half minutes, but I wanted to go a little longer be just because, you know, squeezing that into that short a time frame didn't feel best to tell the story of some of these really successful programs. Yeah. And and it was tremendous content. We'll get you out of here on this very last question. Will you be covering the loot tribute at McHale on, on September 12th? That is my plan is to be in person for the Lute Olson tribute. Uh, Dave Hickey had a, a lunch event with the media last week and gave us a glimpse of what it's going to be like. And he said, Lute Olson's family is going to be involved. Former players are going to be involved. And it's going to be just a celebration of everything he did as a coach, as a mentor, as a husband, as a father, trying to blend as many positive things as Lute Olson did and as many people he touched and tie it all together in one event. And, uh, you know, it'll look a lot similar to the Dick Tomey tribute that occurred, you know, a couple of years ago when Dick Tomey passed away. So I'm really looking forward to the Lute Olson tribute and, and being there and having everybody in McHale because we didn't really get a proper send off or goodbye for loot. So this feels well overdue now with hopefully COVID stuff dying down and, you know, no, regulations at McHale that we're going to be able to get, you know, 15,000 people in that building and it's going to be a special event. 
eloquently put. It's almost like you you're you're in the field of journalism, Alex. So <laughs> hey, we want to thank you so much again for jumping onto the program. This was terrific. Go follow him on Twitter, Alec White underscore ua especially if you're an arizona fan tremendous content and he's he's got the skinny he's got the scoops uh great reporter alec thank you again man we appreciate yeah, it Subi taylor thanks for having me and uh if you guys want to need some more stuff when basketball season starts we have games to discuss uh, i'm happy to jump on again i'd love that thank you so much of course all right, we want to thank Alec for jumping onto the program. Some wonderful context about Sean Miller. Looking forward towards the Tommy Lloyd era. And, of course, make sure to check out that video reel that he put together on his Twitter. Again, that Twitter is Alec, A-L-E-C-W-H-I-T-E underscore U-A. What was great about Alec is that he offered a perspective that we haven't had previously we've had players come on so they may be a little biased right we've had some coaches come on they of course may be a little bit biased alec in the media shoot a straight shooter excuse me so very much appreciate him jumping onto the program and of course as always we appreciate you guys listening we'll catch you here in september Uh, the season's rapidly approaching very quickly here ladies and gentlemen we'll see you in september thanks again for listening we'll catch you next time here on theater and college hoops.